Now, last week we started uh, talking a little bit more in depth on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He is the helper who was sent, who is sent to us by God the Father. He is the one who is always with the believer, the one that reassures us that we are not orphans, but rather we are part of God's family. And here in these closing verses of chapter 14, we continue to study several more aspects of the ministry of the Holy Spirit and they will be picked up again in chapter 16. Now, first of all, we need to cover a little bit of theological uh, issues and, and doctrines and this is actually very helpful, especially if you get into discussions about the relationship between the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit because there are many people out there who do not believe in God, let alone how you could possibly have the God, the three in one. So, in light of a verse that is coming up, that is verse 28, for my Father is greater than I, that verse has been used by the cults and, and sects as, a, as confirmation that indeed there is, there is this uh, hierarchy, there, there is a way that, well, hang on, Jesus is obviously not God because he already said it here. So, and, and this, this is one of the favourite verses of the Unitarians, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses and others who would deny the deity of Christ. And for many of them, the Holy Spirit is simply a power, um, some energy. In Star Wars term, it'd be the force. Okay? Of course, that is anathema. That is totally against what we believe. But the early church struggled with this because they said, well, Father is God, the Son is God, as clearly says in the Scripture, and Jesus himself affirmed it, and then the Holy Spirit is God. So how is it that we can all fit three of these in the Godhead? Now, the meaning is easier to understand if a person is not determined to deny the deity of Jesus Christ. If a person has closed their mind to learning, you are simply butting your head against the wall to try and teach anything and you're not going to win the argument. We've, some of us have been there. So I'm going to give you a picture here. Uh, you might want to take a, a, probably a picture of that uh, on your phones if you have them or draw them on a piece of paper because it's very helpful when you're trying to explain to somebody what it is, their whole relationship. Uh, this is, uh, found this on the Gospel Coalition. So, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are all God. It's in the middle. The Son glorifies the Father. The Father glorifies the Son. The Father glorifies the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit glorifies the Son. The Son glorifies the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit glorifies the Son. The Son is not the Father, but the Son is in the Father. The Father is not the Son, but the Father is in the Son. The Father is not the Holy Spirit, but the Father is in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father, but the Holy Spirit is in the Father. The Holy Spirit is God, the Son is God, 
The Father is God. Clear as a bell, right? <laughs> that brings a whole lot of, of uh, discussion and history and doctrine together into, into one picture. If you think more along picture lines, then this will be very helpful for you, especially if you're in a, in a restaurant or someone and trying to explain the whole concept of the Trinity to perhaps a friend who is not a believer or perhaps belongs to one of the cults. There is an economy in the Godhead. Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit are co-eternal and co-equal as three divine persons. One in essence. Yet there is an order in the Godhead as the Son submits to the, to the will of the Father and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And so Jesus is in, in, in his humanity submits to the will of the Father but in his deity he is equal with God the Father. Now that we've cleared that up, Let's look a little bit more into the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the first part we want to look at is that the Holy Spirit makes a home, verses 22 to 25. The Holy Spirit makes a home. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not the world? And Jesus replied, Who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. And all this I have spoken while still with you. And here we have one more question to be asked, this time by Judas. And uh, John clarifies it for us and says, well, it's not actually Judas Iscariot because by this time Judas has already left the group to make his plans to betray Jesus. And he makes a, 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 a clarification here because, you see, there was a lot of Judases. Judas is actually a very popular name in, in, in Judaism. But since Judas became the name of the betrayer, very few mums and dads want to call their son Judas. Wonder why. Oh, what's your name? Oh, Judas. Oh, I'm not going to trust you then. <laughs> that's right. So that, that's, uh, that's what happened. But this Judas, but Lord... Why do you intend to show yourself to us and not the world, he asks. Jesus responds by saying that he will no longer reveal himself physically to the disciples, yet he will continue, oh sorry, to him, so physically. He will not reveal himself physically to the disciples and to the world, physically speaking. But he will continue to reveal himself to the world 
through his word, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit to those who believe. The gospel will be proclaimed throughout the world in many languages, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And anyone who loves Jesus and keeps his commandment will enjoy the Lord's indwelling presence through his Spirit, just as his disciples will. However, those who reject his word do not love him and have no interest at all in keeping his commandments. Why should they? Now, in rejecting his words, they end up rejecting both the Father and the Son. Listen again, because this is the, one of the only two times that this word actually appears in the Scripture. That, that, remember, we, we sung that old hymn, I have a mansion, I'm not going to start again. But that's exactly the same word, a mansion. It's actually a place of abode, uh, a home, a, a residence. Or if you're not into you know, your pompous mansion, then just a little room in the Father's house. That'll be enough, right? That'll be enough, more than enough. But there, Jesus said, I'm going to the Father to prepare a place for you, but here it's the other way around. They're coming to prepare a place in us. When you combine number verse 2 and with this verse, the Holy Spirit comes to make a place for my Father at your side. Now, this is extraordinary. Holy Spirit preparing a place in you, in me. And the way the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit interrelate with each other is, 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 is hard to explain. I'll try to explain it in the best way possible. But the Holy Spirit is what, was what makes a place for the Father at our side so that we might become what? We might become temples of the Holy Spirit. And these are the words of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22 so that we might become a dwelling place in which God lives by what? By his Spirit. That is why we need to treat our bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit, because this is where God lives. Now, just imagine for a moment what would have happened if Jesus hadn't gone away and decided to, to live permanently in Jerusalem. His ascension was not to heaven, but to some earthly throne where he became king of Israel. Now, it's bad enough visiting the, the Holy Land now, but can you imagine the millions of people who would be flocking from all over the world to Jerusalem? 
You would make all this effort to go see Jesus, but you will never be able to see him. How on earth would you be able to see him? And thankfully, thankfully we don't have to worry about that, for our Lord is here. He is in us. He's not restricted to one place. We don't have to do this pilgrimage. It's wonderful to visit Israel and look at all these historical places. But Jesus is as much there as he is here because wherever we go, he actually goes with us. God is here with us, we just sung. It's a marvellous truth. Remember the old hymn? Another old hymn. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Can somebody translate the word tarry? What does it mean? Okay, fantastic. That's right. As, and that's... That, him actually reminds us of the sweet communion. And we can enjoy that. That is, that is a, a, an amazing truth through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Then the Holy Spirit as a teacher, verse 26. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Now here, it's the first time in John's Gospel that the Spirit is actually referred to as the Holy Spirit. And then that word, that combination, Holy Spirit, appears again in chapter 20, verse 22. And a crucial ministry of the Holy Spirit is instruction. Education in in what? In the truth of the gospel. And as the spirit of truth, he teaches all things. And when Jesus says all things, that cannot possibly mean that suddenly the disciples become rocket scientists. Or that the disciples suddenly start composing classical music. That's not what is meant in all things. With all their, just think about it, with, it, with all their misunderstandings over these years and how they continually getting it wrong, they, they, they desperately needed further revelation concerning Christ. And all things they need to know about the, the, the troubling and the, and the dramatic events that we're about to unravel. It's just, it's all going to happen now. How are we going to tie it all together? How are they going to make sense of everything? And how does that, the, the, the events that, that, that was going to happen in just a few hours all the mess, all the emotional turmoil. 
how will that make all sense in the context of redemptive history? Not just a few hours. In particular, Jesus tells them specifically, more specifically, Jesus tells them that the Holy Spirit will remind them of everything that Jesus had taught them. So let's look at that. Let's, let's split that up into areas so that we can get a grasp because this is a very important ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, firstly, Jesus promises to send another teacher. They're about to lose their teacher, but this teacher will continue the work of instruction. And a large aspect of the teaching ministry is to enable them to recall, to remember the words of Jesus. Now, when I became a pastor in Liverpool over 20 years ago now, you couldn't possibly have expected me to do everything like Ron Briggs, a long-serving pastor of the church, or Jeff Case, who was immediately before me. Some of you would know them. There couldn't possibly be an expectation that I do everything like Ron Briggs and Jeff Case and to remember everything that they have done and continue in that mode, word for word. Similarly, when I eventually leave, you cannot possibly expect my successor, to remind you of everything I said and done all these years. You probably don't want that either. No, we don't want Paul Mozajuk again. We've had enough of him. But the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will do exactly, exactly this with respect to everything that Jesus taught them. There's nothing original. It's a, it's a follow-through, it's a, it's a continuation of everything Jesus said because the Holy Spirit is God. Jesus is God. The Father is God. There's a continual reminder, exercising, a, a, a reinforcement of everything that, would, that has been said and done. That is why you see a continuation between the Old Testament and the New Testament because God is one. Secondly, the Holy Spirit would explain things they did not understand. This is another important point. Jesus was, as we know, the greatest teacher that ever walked on earth. But even when it was the master himself who first taught and explained things to them over and over again through parables, through simple language, they still didn't get it, which is a great encouragement for us, for you teachers and, and myself, right? That uh, if Jesus couldn't do it, what gives you any hope, you know? So here in this chapter, we have Thomas in verse 5 asking a question. We have Philip in verse 8 asking a question. We have Judas in verse 22 asking 
a question. They're just interrupting, right? Uh, They're putting their hand up. Lord, by the way, seeking clarification. You see, this doesn't make sense. Now, given the, again, the dramatic circumstances of that evening, the thrust of what Jesus was teaching them would, would, because they're overwhelmed emotionally, they just couldn't cope. This is too much. Nothing would be clear, but the Holy Spirit would enable them not only to recall what Jesus said, but to understand, to make sense of everything Jesus did. Oh, he did tell us. Oh, wow. Did you remember that? Bang, bang, bang. One thing after another after another. It all started to make sense. That's the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit would give them wisdom to understand particular events. The Holy Spirit is good at applying truth to a particular circumstance. Because you see, it's one thing to learn theory in school. It is another to apply it in real life, isn't it? And that is the wisdom. This is where, in real life, this is where the principles are fleshed out. You simply read the book of Acts, which we call the Acts of the Apostles. In fact, it is the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles, is it not? Because it was the Spirit behind every trial, behind every challenge, behind every circumstance, every persecution. It was the Holy Spirit this, the Holy Spirit that, working in and through these men, these simple men and women. For example, how to apply Matthew 28 when Jesus go, tells them to go into all the world? What does that mean? The Holy Spirit will show them. What were, the, what were these Jewish disciples who were Jewish men brought up under Judaism? You know, conservative Galileans, what were they possibly going to do with the influx of the Gentiles into the church? How was that going to work out? What are we going to do with all these, these widows, the, the, Greeks, the Greek widows specifically? How, how are we going to manage that? How are we going to separate the work of the disciples? So we're going to appoint deacons to help in the work. And so the church structure began to take shape. And what else? What were they going to say when they were dragged before authorities? How were they going to respond in every trial? And the Holy Spirit spoke through them. It's a marvellous, marvellous work of the Holy Spirit. Lastly, uh, just in this section, help the Holy Spirit will help them see the value of written Scripture. Okay, follow, follow me on this. The words Jesus spoke were words of life, life itself. And they needed this, the words of Jesus, not just to personally recall verbally, 
for their own benefit, but for the benefit of every other believer who will be spread around the world and even us. They needed these words of life to encourage and to sustain them in their daily walk. The Holy Spirit enabled them to remember everything that Jesus had taught them to remember. Word for word. That's where the inspiration of the Scripture comes from, right? Inspired by the Holy Spirit. And under the protection, once these words were written down, under the protection of the Spirit, these texts were preserved even when the enemy in vain, fire after fire, persecution after persecution, what did they go for? They went for the sacred text. And then you had the scribes copying one copy, another copy, another copy in order to spread the Word of God throughout the world. Now, of course, the what we call the canon of Scripture, the books of the Bible. We don't write any more Scripture because what we have received is a closed canon, the sacred text. And once we have read it, once we have read the Scripture, we recognise it as Scripture because the Spirit confirms it in us. It is the Spirit of truth that says that this is truth. And will bring to mind passages that even if we don't have our smartphones or even if we don't have the Bible with us, that the Holy Spirit will bring to mind to apply certain texts to a particular circumstance and situation. And this is the, through his word, is the preferred way throughout history that God chooses to speak to us. You want to hear God's word? Read. His word. Point needs to be made. However, you cannot recall what you have never read. Now the Holy Spirit can push you, says, read, take it and read, right? But let's not make the the work of the Holy Spirit that much harder. Read his word and then he will confirm it throughout our lives. But feed on God's word and then the Holy Spirit will continually bring to mind replied. Then in verse 27, the Spirit brings peace. The Spirit brings peace. Jesus said those famous words, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. It is interesting that the spirit is likened to a dove many times, isn't it? A dove. Remember when Jesus was baptized? Like a dove. And what is a dove? The dove is the universal symbol of peace. So is it Jesus or the Holy Spirit which brings peace? Again, it is neither or, it is both and. Jesus already gives a disclaimer that his peace is different 
to the world's peace. It is different. The world cannot understand this type of peace. The peace that Jesus gives is not a, a kind of placid tranquility which avoids all conflict. He will say more of this in, in chapter 16. For the Romans, they understood peace. The, the Romans had the Latin saying, uh, Pax Romana. Pax Romana was the infamous uh, peace in Rome when the Roman Empire had conquered everything. They have subjugated everybody. They've killed everything. That they, all their enemies, they were destroyed. Suddenly we have peace. That's their definition of peace. That's one way to achieve it. No one dare question you. And subsequent governments and empires have tried to do exactly the same. I think this was Hitler's idea of peace as well. For Eastern religions, the way to attain peace is to develop a kind of mystical existence through meditation and so forth, by, and, the, and then through that to become detached from the physical and start attaining the, the spiritual realities. Through exercise and meditation, you, you move from one realm to another. And this is what they, this they say, this is the way to attain peace. Now, is that the, what Jesus was meaning here? No, it's very different to the biblical notion of peace. The Jews, of course, greet each other with the words, Shalom which means peace, but it's actually wider than the word peace. It's, it's actually more, it's a lot closer to well-being. I wish you well. That is the, the, more of the encompassing thought there. Now, peace is, of course, a, a very big topic throughout the Scriptures, throughout the Bible. And it tells us that the main peace robber is, of course, sin. And to, to look at this a little bit closer, we're going to break it up into three areas, which it's also good, and hopefully throughout the week you'll meditate on this a little bit closer. Three dimensions of peace that we find in the Scriptures, three dimensions. The first dimension is, of course, the vertical, the peace with God. Now, this is the most important peace we need to establish before we move to the other ones because the other ones flow from, from this one. You don't get this one right, you will not know the peace that surpasses all understanding. Let's, let's recall the words from the Apostle Paul, Romans 5.1. Amazing verse, right? Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have what? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the peace. And we are reminded of that in communion. He took the wrath so that we could get mercy. Peace with God. Then you have the other dimension, which is the horizontal, the peace with men. Our sin 
not only made us enemies with God, you saw that in the garden, straight away the effect had an effect on our relationship with each other. And, of course, what do we see? We see issues between Adam and Eve and then between the brothers, Cain and Abel. That ended in a violent manner. What is one of the fruits of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians? It is, of course, peace, isn't it? But sometimes standing for what I believe, and this is becoming a real issue among Christians as they relate to the world, what happens when we stand for what we believe? It means that we're going to attract conflict if our views are different to that of the world. If your views are different to that of your boss, to that of your colleagues, your neighbours and so forth. Do we just then lower our beliefs so that we can match those of our neighbours and so we have peace? Let's not talk about it, okay? Family dinner, don't mention it. There's an air of peace, but there is tension, isn't there? Because everybody knows I can believe and understand. Is that the peace that Jesus talks about? We don't say anything. What about when Christians want to stand up for the sanctity of life and abortion? Do we not say anything about it for the sake of peace and let them continue to have their abortions and change laws and everything else to kill the young, the, the, the infants and then to start killing the old with euthanasia? Really? Is, is that how we attain peace? There's a lot I can say about that, but let me move on. Remember the words remember the words of the Apostle Paul within the context of a of a fellowship and within the the context of our human relationships with the others who are perhaps not even Christians. If it is possible, he says in Romans twelve eighteen, if it is possible as far as it depends on you. Live at peace with everybody. They might hate your guts, but you have to sleep at night and say, well, I've done everything I could. I've tried. What can I say? I'm not going to betray my faith. I'm not going to betray my master because of, because of that. And the third aspect of peace is inner, inner peace. There are so many examples of people today, isn't there, at war within themselves. James 4.1 tells us about this. This is where the wars start and everything, all the issues inside the heart and then they, out of the fullness of the heart, it goes, that's where it starts. We've, we've all heard the expression, even from our, our youth, 
I hate myself. Well, what do you mean? Well, that could take many forms. I hate my gender. I hate my parents. I hate my school. Hate is a strong word, but it tells you that that individual is in conflict with themselves. They, they just, I'm fat, you know, or I'm this, I'm, I'm dumb. And so on. You, you, you see this. In the, 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 there's an identity crisis. Well, how do we move on from that? Paul tells us that the ministry of the Spirit in this respect is to take control of our lives in every respect. Romans 8, 6. The battle, you see, starts in the mind, doesn't it? The battle of the mind. The mind governed by the flesh, if you simply follow your desires, your passions, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. There it is. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, through the, the Holy Spirit, does not leave us this fleeting peace that is based on our feelings and how situations go. We won lotto, hakuna matata, everything is fantastic, right? I heard this great talk. I went to hear Tony Robbins and feeling pumped, man, feeling good. Hey. More than that, it's a solid, lasting peace. So do not be troubled. Do not be afraid, whatever the issue, whatever the calamity. And I like these words of Matthew Henry who said, when Christ was about to leave the world, he made his will. His soul he committed to the Father, his body he bequeathed to Joseph, his clothes fell to the soldiers, his mother he left to the care of John. But what should he leave to his poor disciples who had left all for him? Silver and gold he had none, but he left them that which was infinitely better, his peace. End of quote from Matthew Henry. In verses 28 to 31, ready for the battle ahead. Ready for the battle ahead. Verses 28 to 31, it says, You heard me say I'm going away, but I'm coming back to you. If you love me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I, and I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the Prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what the, my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. Rather than wallow in their grief because of the separation from Jesus, they should actually be happy for him because he is returning to the Father. They should be filled with hope that he is also coming back for them. 
The supreme hope, the supreme hope of the church is the return of Jesus Christ. And as we go through our trials, we might just get lost in the, in the thought, the wonderful thought of being in heaven with our Father and Lord, just take me now, please. I can't handle this anymore. How many times have you said that to yourself? <laughs> Hopefully it's not every morning. That is a wonderful thought, but however, as wonderful a prospect as that is, we must never lose sight of the fact that we are in a battle here and now. And we are in it. There are two enemies that Jesus speaks of here. He talks about the devil and the world. The devil and the world. Let's remember that Jesus overcame both. And yeah, he even overcame the third one, which is the flesh, which is not mentioned here. Because of this, we can overcome. He overcame. We can overcome. Satan and the world cannot get a foothold in your life unless you permit it. The Bible says don't give the devil a foothold. Don't give him a space in your life so that he can put his foot in and, and start to get a grip on you and start climbing all over you. You don't want that. And the way he gets a foothold is when you believe the lies. He is the father of lies. Start believing them. He's got a foothold. So if you believe the truth, which is found in Scripture, then you will have a source of power and strength for the days ahead. And there is this curious thing at the end of the chapter. It's had different interpretations because they are here. And those little words, arise, let us go from here. Actually, the word that Jesus uses here is actually a military word. It's not so much a word as an expression. It's like, let's get up and get out of here. It's a word of command to his beleaguered soldiers. They need to, they, they need to get ready for the battle ahead. It's going to be hard. They need to steal themselves, prepare themselves now. Another expression in the Bible is to gird their loins. And we also need to prepare for battle in the assurance that we are more than victors in Jesus Christ. Amen.